I'm Jeff Baker of the Seattle Times, and you're listening to Hard Count, a regular podcast all about the world of sports business. So strap yourselves in and get ready for some candid talk about the world of sports and the money behind them. And welcome to Hard Count for Tuesday, April 18th, 2017. We're going to have a very special edition today, and it's going to be all about Seattle's ongoing arena saga. And as you know, last week, a pair of groups, uh, Oakview Group and uh, the AEG, Hudson Pacific Properties contingent of Seattle partners, both submitted uh, proposals to renovate Key Arena. Both proposals were in excess of $500 million, and now the city is going to take until late June to decide which of those two proposals uh, works out best. And then will they will be pitted, whoever emerges from that competition will be pitted against Chris Hansen's proposal down in Soto District. And the city will then pick one arena site and one group and decide where to go from there in building its major arena. At least that's the plans for right now. I mean, who knows what's going to happen politically? We've had all kinds of uh, things going on behind the scenes. Ed Murray is in, uh, the mayor of Seattle who launched this entire key arena renovation uh, process, is in the midst of a scandal, and it was announced um, yesterday, it was announced on Monday, that Mike McGinn, the city's former mayor, Mike McGinn, is going to run against Ed Murray. And as many of you know, Mike McGinn helped author the initial uh, memorandum of understanding between Chris Hansen and the city of Seattle on the Soto District project, which is... You know, by by seriously, by all serious analysis, is probably lagging behind the key arena proposals at this point, uh, because the city, no doubt, wants to find a way to uh, help revive its arena at Key Arena, and um, you know, just by that basis, the Soto Arena appears to be trailing in that competition. But we don't know, and who knows what the political landscape will do to change this entire process and whether or not it will change. But right now, we're going to go under the assumption that Ed Murray's still going to be the mayor um, come November and that Ed Murray is still going to usher this process through as we've you know, been, been experiencing, experiencing it for the last few months. As we said, things can change on a dime. You never know with politics. So we'll see. Uh, let's, uh, let's take a look, though. What, what we're going to do today is I've, I have promised for a while now that I'm going to analyze all three proposals, once they're in, once we have some more information on the key arena proposals, and we do have more information right now. We don't have the total amount of information. We have the executive summaries that were submitted to the city last week. Plus, we have our own reporting and our own uh, subsequent interviews, our follow-up interviews with the various groups in which we've gotten more information out of them about their plans. But you have to understand, the, these proposals that were submitted, one of them was about 500 pages long, and that was by the uh, Seattle Partners Group. The Oakview Group's uh, complete project was something about, uh, from what I'm told, about 150 pages long. But that's still a lot of pages that we don't have. And so you have to be patient. Um, we're going to try to analyze stuff based on the evidence that we have and what we do know. And so the, the revelations, though, by these groups, the, the renderings that were submitted last week were very interesting. The architecture, as I wrote in my Monday column inside Sports Business in the Seattle Times, the architecture was so important to this process because it's the reason we have a process to begin with. Don't forget that the challenge here was to see whether these key arena groups could actually get back in the game, could actually get into this game. 
by designing a world-class arena at Seattle Center. And we didn't know whether or not that was possible. The ACOM report in 2015 told us that it was possible, but it's one thing to say it's possible. It's another thing to actually be able to put a price tag on it and show designs and, and, and architectural sets that, that show that a building can be designed. So the new baseline has now been established. We now have three projects claiming they can build world-class arenas at both sites, Soto and at Seattle Center. And that's huge. That's a game changer right there because the baseline is now set. In knowing that these groups can build such an arena, now we have to look at the other stuff. Now we have to look at, at the subsequent things. We have to look at the financing behind it. We have to look at the ability to actually get the project started without outside help, without contingencies. We also have to look at things like parking and traffic and transportation. I mean, that's a huge component, but it is just a component. It's not the main part of this competition, but we do have to look at that as well. So I'm going to take a look at some of that stuff today. I'm going to start off with the financing because the financing is, is, is key, is very, is very big in this whole process. It's nice to have drawings and, and, and renderings and, and plans, but unless you can accomplish them, unless you can show how you're going to pay for it all, it doesn't really make a difference. And, and that's where the contingencies part comes in. Do you need outside forces to intervene in order to get your project started? Do you need somebody to sign off on something in order to get something started? So let's start off right now. Let's take a look at the financing of the three groups that are involved. And I'll tell you what, this is going to be an objective analysis of this stuff. So, and what that means is I'm not going to be cheerleading for any one group over the other. So the people that want to write in and call in and tweet me and say, how can you look at this? Everybody knows that the Soto Project is the best. You're probably not going to like this show. I'll tell you right now. Uh, because we are going to look at facts, we're going to look at objective criterion, and we're going to make an analysis and a determination based on objective stuff, stuff that you can quantify, facts that are out there, not hearsay, not what your opinion is, not the fact that a certain area is designated as a stadium zone over another. We're going to look at the stuff that actually matters and the stuff that the city is going to be looking at as well, because there's no point giving you, you folks a whole bunch of opinions that don't matter in the end that nobody's going to look at. You can say, oh yeah, it'd be great to have two music, a music facility and a sports facility, but that's not being looked at. So I'm not going to sit here and suggest that to you when I know that there's no possibility of it happening because everybody involved in the process has rejected that. So, you know, if you want to hear those opinions, you can go to people who will express them for you, but I'm not going to do that here. What I'm doing here is taking an objective analysis, a look at what these groups have submitted and what appears to be uh, the best choice for the city of Seattle and what appears to be at least leading the competition at this stage. Remember, we don't have the full packet of information, but we do have enough info to start the analysis with. First off, uh, yesterday, I went down to Seattle City Hall to listen to the uh, Select Committee on Arenas that's chaired by, uh, uh, that's chaired by uh, Deborah Juarez, one of the city council members, and, and Bruce Harrell, another city council member, is also part of that. But Juarez was, was chairing the meeting yesterday. And um, it was interesting because the, the city council members took their first look at the key arena proposals, gave some of their opinions and their analysis and their takes on it. A lot of their takes are some of the things that we wrote about already last week. Uh, when we told you that uh, at least one of the projects is going to be looking for public money, that would be the AEG, Hudson Pacific Properties Partnership. They are going to be looking at public money before the arena is actually built. 
they're looking for public public bond funding. And it's not the same as getting a cash handout, but it is this. It is very similar to what Chris Hansen was looking for down in Soto District um, last year before his project was derailed by a city council vote. And we've already written that. We told you about that last week. We were the first people to tell you that uh, the AEG group, is, is the Seattle Partners Group, is looking for $250 million in public bond funds. Now, the Oakview Group is also looking for some public money, but that's going to come after the arena, arena is built. The, their arena plan calls for all, prod, all private funding on the construction part of the arena. So that, that there is a difference right there. But let's listen a bit to what some of the city council members' reactions were yesterday down at that uh, city hall meeting. Tim Burgess, uh, one of the city council members, was asking some, you know, some very direct questions of the city's budget director, um, Ben Noble. And Burgess wanted to know, like, is there, in fact, public funding being used in these projects? So let's hear how he, uh, he starts the questioning off. One additional question, both of the... Uh, respondents made comments about the financial risk that the city may or may not carry. Uh, Oakview wrote in their presentation that, quote, we will take all of the financial risk privately. Uh, they say in another section, um, this will be privately financed with um, Oakview assuming all of the financial risk on the construction, ongoing operations, and capital improvements for the building. And then there's this little sentence that says, however, Oakville will work with the city to identify a mechanism for reinvestment of new revenue streams back into the project. AEG says something similar. Um, they talk about um, a public-private partnership. And then they say, we will request to partner with the city to align our goals. And then it goes on and talks about uh, use of revenues. What are they meaning there? So there's the question that Tim Burgess asked about what was in the proposals, and here's the response that City Budget Director Ben Noble gave to him. Both proposers seem to be indicating um, that they would want the city to, to, to take the incremental revenues above the current operations at Key Arena. So and those revenue streams are potentially admissions tax, um, parking-associated revenues, uh, noting that parking taxes actually has to be used for transportation purpose, um, potentially being up business and occupation tax revenues, and depending on the scenarios, um, leasehold excise tax, which is what's paid on a public property that's being used for commercial purposes in lieu of property tax. The notion that those monies would then be fed back into the arena in potentially different ways um, for one party, and, and maybe similar ways, um, uh, in, in part to help uh, capitalize the fund, uh, to be more specific, ongoing improvements. Uh, what we know, experience here in the city, is that you don't build an arena once, if you will. You need to continually be building your arena, if, uh, improving its um, and so there's acknowledgement that um, that those costs um, could be shared. It, it, ultimately, this will be a facility that is owned by the city, so that, that could, could potentially make sense. Um, in addition, the proposal from AEG Hudson um, more specifically references the idea that the city um, would issue debt, um, uh, again, full faith and credit debt of the city with contractual guarantees from the party that they would that, that debt would be repaid by them as opposed to the city. That, that latter arrangement was essentially consistent with the original proposal um, around the Soto Arena. 
So there you go. Apparently, I'm not the only one seeing a similarity between the Seattle Partners' uh, proposal for $250 million in public bond funding and Chris Hansen's previous proposal asking for $200 million in bond funding for his Soto Arena, which has since been dropped in favor of an all-private construction offer. Um, Ben Noble, the city's budget director, just pointed that out. So after he did that, Tim Burgess, the city council member, had a follow-up question to ask him based on what he said. So... Is it fair to conclude then that, as I hear you, both respondents to the RFP will in some way utilize public funds to assist this enterprise in some way? I think that's fair. And in the context of a public arena, they think that that's appropriate. Right. Okay, so there's the situation in a nutshell. Um, You have the two key arena groups both submitting their proposals and... Um, city Council Member Tim Burgess asking for clarification, and, and the clarification from Ben Noble, the city's budget director, is that, yes, indeed, there is some degree of public money being requested by both groups. Now, this isn't anything new. We told you this already last week, um, and, and we'll go into that a bit because we've done follow-up questions with both groups as far as the, the components of their bids and what they are going to involve. Um, not uh, let me just say this right up front. Not all public funding efforts are created equal, uh, because in one of these bids, you have the Seattle Partners Group asking for 250 million in public bonding right up front as part of their construction phase. The Oakview Group is not asking for money, as you heard Ben Ben Noble say, as part of the construction phase. They're asking for it on subsequent arena revenues that come afterwards. That's very similar. I, I should say, to stuff that Chris Hansen is doing down in Soto District. Chris Hansen is proposing all private funding, but he's also asking for certain tax breaks after that arena project is complete, and those tax breaks will indeed constitute public funding. So, uh, as we said, not everything's considered equal. Let's, let's have a listen to what some of the key arena groups were saying last week after they submitted their RFP proposals to the city about the funding components of their of their respective plans. Let's hear first from Tim Laiwicki, uh, head of the Oakview Group, about what his company's plans are with regards to funding. You know, we, we get some investments from the city, but it's above and beyond what they're currently making at Seattle Center and so at the arena. So admissions tax, we guarantee them they're going to make as much money as they're making now. We save them the $100 million in capital that they have currently allocated for Seattle Center. We put up the $564 million, then we donate the arena back to them and sign a 35-year lease. And whatever investment they make will only be in new taxes and revenue generated from the building above and beyond what they're generating now. So there you go. That's Tim Laiwicki of the Oakview Group explaining some of the public dollars that his group is going to be going after after the arena is built. As I mentioned, there there are two types of <laughs> there's all kind there's more than two types. There's all kinds of ways you can go after public dollars. That's the way the Oakview Group is doing it. They're going to build the arena first, not using public dollars, and then afterwards they are going to seek some public dollars from the city, much like Chris Hansen is going to do down in Soto District. Again, the plan that Tim Laiwicki has said is that they will be. Um, asking for those public dollars after the arena is built. How are they going to build the arena? Well, I clarified that a bit um, on Monday with Lance Lopes, who is the Oakview Group's Seattle representative. And I asked Lopes to to spell out exactly how they are going to finance the arena. And what Lopes told me is they're getting $400 million of 
equity investment up front from the Oakview Group and from its Madison Square Garden company financial backer. They're going to put up $400 million, give or take a little bit. And that little bit could go up to about $414 million because in addition to that capital they're putting up, think of it as like the down payment of a mortgage. That's cash that they're putting down, their own money they're putting down. But then after that, they're going to finance $150 million of the initial arena construction with a loan from Goldman Sachs. Now, Goldman Sachs, as you know, one of the premier investment bankers around the world, and they, they loan money to major projects all the time. So consider that the mortgage part of their, of their plan to build this arena, the $150 million. So they're putting $400 plus million down and then $150 million loan from Goldman Sachs that's going to equal the $564 million price tag for their project. That's how they are building it. No public funds involved there, but they are going to seek some additional revenue streams afterwards, which you just heard Tim Laiwicki say in the quote. So that's the Oakview Group's bid. Then after that, let's move on to the AEG Hudson Pacific Properties bid, known as Seattle Partners bid. And, and let's see what they're proposing. $520 million is part of their proposal. But in addition to that, they're also going to seek the bond money. First, we'll go to Chris Valvalidis, who is the chief investment officer for Hudson Pacific Properties. And he explains the down payment part of things, the $270 million that his group is going to put up um, before they start seeking additional money from the city. Let's hear from Chris Valvalidis right now. Uh, we have no financing contingency as part of our proposal. Uh, Hudson's a, a, a well-capitalized, uh, publicly traded company with uh, total enterprise value of about $8 billion. I think uh, AEG's credentials um, you know, speak for themselves just on, on what they do. Uh, so the combination of both our companies, uh, uh, you know, there's no financing contingency, and we're going to have um, a serious stake in this, uh, in this investment. So that's Chris Valvalidis, Chief Investment Officer of Hudson Pacific Properties, talking about how the Seattle Partners Group, a combination of his company and AEG, is not going to have any contingencies on its financing plan. Well, that's true to an extent. They're not going to have contingencies in that they're borrowing money the way the Oakview Group is from Goldman Sachs, but there is a slight contingency, and that contingency, I'm being sarcastic, that contingency involves asking the city for $250 million in public bond money. And as you know, this was a big deal when Chris Hansen uh, proposed it for his project, but Seattle Partners is saying that their request for bonding for $250 million of public bond funds. And let me explain how these bonds work. The reason you ask for public bond funds is because you get a lower rate of interest than you would by borrowing the money from a bank like Goldman Sachs. The city does have the ability to do bonding, to use its bonding capacity to get much lower rates of interest. And that saves you millions of dollars over the life of a big construction project, especially one worth half a billion dollars. So that's what they're doing. Let's hear Bob Newman... Uh, the, the president of AEG, he was on hand the day that the uh, RFP was submitted. He was on hand to explain how his bonding proposal is going to work and why the city will benefit from it through a mechanism that his company has devised. Let's, uh, let's hear from Bob Newman right now. So, so yeah. the model that we have, though, also, there's no financing contingencies on the private sector involvement in this project. What we have created, though, is, is a model that, that aligns our goals with the city, but also provides the opportunity for the, for the project to have even greater returns and those returns to go to the city. 
And it's a model that over the initial term of the lease would probably project in you know, a base case scenario about $140 million of direct revenue, surplus revenues, to come to the city on top of, you know, on top of the project being completed and all the other economic impact it would have. In return for that, all the city is taking advantage of its ability to take advantage of some financing mechanisms that are available only to the city. And we're dedicating the revenues from the project and with our guarantees behind that for you know the repayment of that. But it's, it's a win-win. We, by doing this model, we've created surplus revenues. And that's, you know, that's, that's the, the true partnership in this. It, we were thinking outside the box saying, how do we make it even bigger than it can be? And that's how we arrived at this model. So you're talking about muni bonds from the city? I, I, don't, know, I don't know the type of bonds, yeah. but there's some financing. The city, the municipality has the ability to participate, as we've seen elsewhere in other projects. And this is, no, you know, this is very similar to what's been done in other projects you know, in the U.S. and elsewhere, where to take advantage of things that are available only to the city at zero risk to the city, no new taxes, the revenues, you know, are coming from the project and are completely backstopped by the private sector. That it's it, there. There is no risk to the city in this scenario. So, so in a short answer, to sum it up quickly, how does your project differ from what Chris Hansen was proposing a year ago when he was going to get up to two hundred million dollars in, in public bonds, uh, and, and he said he, he would repay them over time? I'll be honest with you. I, I, I'm not familiar enough with that to, to answer. I do know that this works. You know, we're, we're, we're proud of this scenario because I think it, you know, the, the city's goal was to, to not only have the building done now, but how do you make sure it's successful for the long term? How does it have long term returns? So again, that's Bob Newman, president of AEG, making his case for why his company is seeking $250 million of public bond funding. So the next day after that interview that I had with him, uh, Newman and, um, and some of uh, the people associated with his bid showed up at the Seattle Times editorial board to speak to our editorial board. And as happens nowadays with the arena situation, because I handle it daily and I'm well-versed in what questions to ask, I was invited to sit in on that and to ask questions, which I did. I gladly accepted that invitation because I wanted to follow up on the bond funding proposal because I knew it was going to become an issue of public debate naturally because of the comparisons that would be made with Chris Hansen's proposal. So naturally, we asked Bob Newman to, again, explain why he needed the, um, the, the public bond money. And we know the answer. He needs it because the lower interest rate will save millions of dollars for his company over time. But we also asked him, first of all, to spell out exactly how much money they were asking for. And that's where the $250 million figure first came up, as you'll hear in the clip that's about to start. And then after that, Newman told us that, you know, the, the, this project is a win-win for the city and it's going to make the city millions of dollars in returns per year if it works out as they had planned. But then he also admitted that they have yet to discuss exact terms with the city and that everything's up for negotiation. The $250 million isn't a set amount and that his group is flexible and they can move around to various figures as talks progress, depending on what the city wants to do. So let's have a listen to what Newman told our editorial board and me when we were both questioning him. The model right now shows about 250, but we're, we're flexible on that again because we haven't been able to sit with the city. You know, so here's a concept that you put on the table. We fully expect, you know, dialogue back and forth, but we think this makes sense, but either you're doing it in a vacuum because you can't have the dialogue. Sure. And so, you know, we, we, we've modeled up, and, and the private sector, we would, you know, we would, our equity is not contingent on any financing, any loans for the other, you know, whatever, 280 or whatever the number is that, you know, gets the project done. We're not worried about that. And that's, you know, there is no loans needed for that. There is no Goldman Sachs or anyone else involved. 
you know, to, to pull that off. And there you have it. So in, in a way, we already answered some of the questions that Tim Burgess was asking to Ben Noble, the city's budget director, yesterday at that city council meeting via our interviews. We've now told you, and we did tell you prior, exactly what these two groups are doing and what the fund, public funding component of both groups was going to be. So let's look at both of them now and spell it out, and then we can also compare it to, to Chris Hansen's proposal. So from Oakview Group, Based on our interview yesterday with Lance Lopes and on the previous information given to us by Tim Lywicki, we now know that they are putting up $400 million of their own equity via themselves and Madison Square Garden Company and their other partners, $400 or so million. They're getting a $150 million bank loan from Goldman Sachs, and that's how they plan to fund their project. And the extra $14 million that's in there that's going to get you to 564 is also going to come from equity funding. So you're looking at about $400 14 million dollars of private equity funding from their group from uh not even funding funding is not even the right way to to describe it the money that they're putting down is 414 million dollars and they're getting a bank loan of 150 million dollars that's how they get to their 564 million dollar total investment in the project and now you move on to AEG and Hudson Pacific Properties the Seattle Partners Group they are going to put down $270 million of their own money, no bank financing involved. And then after that, they're asking for $250 million of public bond funding from the city in a mechanism that will net the city returns, they say, positive returns yearly if they get that loan. They will pay back the loan, guarantee the loan, and they will get the city extra revenue based off of that. That's their proposal right there. So one of them is publicly funded right off the bat. The other proposal is not publicly funded. It's all privately funded. But then the Oakview Group's going to seek some city revenues after the fact. Now let's look at Chris Hansen's proposal down in Soto District. Chris Hansen has said he's going to privately finance the entire phase of his arena project. And that project was $490 million a few years ago. And now, as we know, with the, the way Seattle construction has gone and with inflation and all that, you're looking at a proposal that's probably up closer to $550 million, maybe even $600 million by the time it's all done. So they're on, a, on par with these other groups. They're going to be spending right around the same amount of money, let's say, uh, give or take. And so how is Chris Hansen going to finance that? The answer is we don't know. The answer is, unlike these other groups, Chris Hansen has not given his funding mechanisms to anybody. We have no idea how he's going to finance it. He says he will, all privately. So let's take a look at uh, what his net worth is. Uh, of course, his group consists of Chris Hansen. It consists of brothers uh, Peter and Eric Nordstrom. It consists of quarterback Russell Wilson, and it consists of uh, Wally Walker, the former uh, Sonics great. And so... Uh, former Sonics player, of course, on their on their championship team and former Sonics executive. Do all of these people have the money on their own to finance this project? The answer is no. Not one of them appears on the Forbes uh, billionaires list in any given year. So unless they've got a few billion stashed away in a secret Swiss bank account that nobody knows about, it's safe to assume none of these people are billionaires. Uh, that's number one. As far as the Nordstrom family goes, the father, Bruce Nordstrom is indeed a billionaire. He was last valued at approximately $1.3 billion, give or take. It, it changes, obviously, on a weekly basis. And then his, uh, and apparently the Nordstrom's aunt is also uh, a billionaire. And so between them, the father and the aunt um, contribute to about uh, two-thirds of the family's total fortune, which is estimated, again, by Forbes at around $3.3, $3.2 billion, something like that. 
So safe to assume neither Nordstrom brother is a billionaire yet on their own terms. So Hanson's not a billionaire. The Nordstroms aren't billionaires. Seahawks quarterback Russell Wilson is definitely not a billionaire. He's probably worth uh, below $200 million net worth. I'd be surprised if it's even close to that figure. And then Wally Walker is nowhere close to being a billionaire. So if you combine the net worths of all these individuals in Hanson's group, you might exceed a billion dollars. And, you know, that, that, that's definitely within the realm of possibility. But, again, does that mean we're going to see these guys spend their entire net worth on a team or, or the majority of their net worth on, on a, not a team, but a, a team and an arena? No. If the arena is $600 million and your combined fortune is, is $1.5 billion or whatever, you're not going to spend a third of your combined fortune or, or close to half of your combined fortune on just building an arena. You're going to need financing. Chris Hansen has already said in public he's going to need financing from somebody other than his current group. He's either going to have to take on new partners. He's probably going to have to borrow from a bank or two. And he has said that nobody's going to lend you money unless you can prove that you're getting teams. Well, that's not true. The Oakview Group has already proven that not to be true. The Oakview Group's gotten $150 million in private financing from uh, Goldman Sachs, and they are not bringing in a team as part of their proposal. So Chris Hansen's funding and, and what we know about his group is incomplete compared to these other groups. And I keep hearing that the Soto Project is already ahead and ready to go compared to these other groups. Well, that, that part, unfortunately, as I've just shown you, is not true. The other groups have already shown how they're going to get their funding. You might not like the public bond funding request by uh, Seattle Partners, and I know a lot of people won't, and I understand why they won't, but that's out there. They've already stated that's how they plan to get their financing. The Oakview Group has already stated how it's going to finance its construction of the arena. Chris Hansen has not done that. We don't know who Chris Hansen's final partnership is going to be, what it's going to consist of. We don't know who's going to be contributing what amount of money to his project, and we don't know what outside lending institutions he's going to go to in order to get his arena built. Remember, you're talking about an arena that will probably be about $500 million, $550, maybe $600 million by the time it's all done. And then he says he wants to own a basketball team, which is going to be another billion dollars. But we'll just talk about the arenas for now. On just the arena question alone, we don't know who is financing Hansen's project. We don't know how he plans to go about financing it, only that he says it's going to be 100% private. So that's where he's at. So if we're going to make a judgment between the three groups right now, I would have to say, based on the evidence, based on the facts, the objective facts that we have in front of us, I would have to say Oakview Group so far has presented the project that I think is going to be most capable of getting approved by the city. And uh, the one thing I forgot to mention about their, um, their particular plan is that beyond that $150 million loan from Goldman Sachs, they have the ability to go out and get another $200 million worth of loan from Goldman Sachs once they do get teams. So they have the arena construction completely financed, and then they have the option of getting another $200 million in funding from Goldman Sachs once they do get teams to come to Seattle. So that's going to be important as far as how they're going to finance future operations and future things. But right now, they're putting up $414 million or so of their own money as a down payment. The AEG group with Hudson Pacific Properties, the so-called Seattle Partners Group, is putting down $270 million of their own money, and they're asking the city for uh, the $250 million in bond funding. As far as Chris Hansen goes, we don't know how he's going to fund the 100% private 
uh, equity, he says, is going to be used to finance his, uh, his bid, his $600 million or so, or his $550 million arena. We don't know how he's planning to do that. So I think right off the face of it, Oakview Group would have to be number one if we're going to rank these financing proposals. Because in my book, $414 million of your money used as a down payment trumps $270 million that the Seattle Partners Group is putting up. And as I said, there is no public money request for the construction phase of the Oakview Group project. So if I had to rate the two right now, I would say, and, and again, we don't know the full details yet. And the city, for all we know, might go for the Seattle Partners bid. They might say, hey, this looks like a way we can make money. It sounds like a great idea. But I'd say right now, on the face of it, for me, $414 million down trumps $270 million down. So I'd have to rank Oakview Group number one. Seattle Partners, number two, and I have to put Hanson Soto Group third. I'm sorry, we don't know any details of how he's going to finance his plan. All we know is that his group does not have the net worth to do it on their own. So they have to be number three right now if you're going to do this objectively because it's an incomplete. He has not told anybody how he's going to finance the project. So people might not like that, but those are the facts. If you want to argue with me, send me evidence to show that you know who Hanson's banker is going to be, or who his new investors are going to be. And if you're a city making a decision, you have to know these things. So right now, I would have to say Oakview Group, number one, Seattle Partners, number two, and Hanson Soda Group is third on the financing component. All right, for this next segment, let's take a look at some of the concerns that many of you have been expressing about both of these bids. And I don't want to ignore these concerns because they are going to play a key role in the city's final decision. But again, we're going to look at the concerns, but we're also going to interpret them in an objective fashion. Just because you have concerns doesn't mean it invalidates a project or a group's proposal. It just means they are concerns that must be addressed. The one concern I hear from, from Soto pro proponents, the people who want to see an arena built in Soto District, is that they're afraid that the key arena groups are going to build a music-only facility, uh, meaning once they build it for music, it's going to be so profitable that they are not going to need um, an arena built anyplace else, or, or sorry, need to bring teams in um, to play at their arena. So that is the concern that's been expressed. They say that AEG has done this in Kansas City before. They built an arena down there, said they were going to get teams, and then the teams never came. That, that is a big fear that's been expressed. It's, it's been, that fear has been um, multiplying ever since the news came out, as we reported in the Seattle Times last week, that the Oakview Group is partnering with Live Nation as one of its equity partners. First time, I believe, Live Nation's ever done that with a sports arena. They are partnering with a group to uh, the, the biggest musical promotions company in the world in order to bring in some of the musical acts that are going to sustain the arena while the Oakview Group seeks out teams to play in the arena. So here is um, Tim Lywicki again, the head of the Oakview Group, explaining that the, the whole rationale behind doing that. And so th this, is, this is fairly new that Live Nation is partnering with us, which we think is critical because if you go to the premise that we have been preaching and we have to live by here, which is we probably invest $564 million, we get the arena going without a guarantee of an anchor tenant, we take that risk and we make it stand on its own two feet. There's only one person, I think, on the face of the earth that can do it and it's them. If we don't have their partnership here and we're not 
able to do 40 nights plus of music. If we don't have Pearl Jam and the guys committed to us on a residency concept like Billy did at the Garden, we couldn't stand on our own two feet and take this risk. What has changed the dynamics here, ironically, and I think everyone's missing it, so you're going to be the first one that picks it up saying, I get what they just did. We have forged a partnership with them that allows us to do what we've been asked to do by all involved, which is we're going to build it. And then we believe they will come. And if they don't come, we're not going to get killed because of the partnership we have with them because this is one of the great music markets and there's just no facility here today that serves this need. Again, that's Tim Lywicki of the Oakview Group speaking uh, right off the bat there about the plan to partner with Live Nation. Now, I brought up the concerns that are being expressed by some of the Soto people about Kansas City, saying that the Kansas City model was they were going to build the Sprint Center. AEG built it when Lywicki was running that group, and they said they were going to go and seek teams to play there, but no teams have materialized. And in the in the interim, the Sprint Centers turned out to be a, a very profitable facility in terms of generating revenues off of music alone. And there's a concern that the, the music venue will become so popular in Seattle that they will take that same approach here and forego ever getting teams to come here because the music will wind up being so so profitable. So I asked Tim Lywicki about that and to explain, you know, you know, and to explain how his group plans to alleviate some of those fears. See, here's the unique thing about our partnership with Live Nation is they're extremely good negotiators too. And so the reality is that we couldn't make it work 20 years as a standalone. You know, the, the forum works because Jim spent a hundred and some odd million dollars on it. But it's like looking at the garden and saying, would you spend a billion dollars on the garden without the Knicks and the Rangers? And the answer to that is a quick no. So our bet is that we're going to do this because we believe we're going to get at least one, if not two teams. And we do that with confidence of our relationship, of our uh, reputation, and of our connections. But we know there's nothing guaranteed. And so we may have to go a few years with music. But I assure you, if this was just about music, you couldn't spend $564 million and make it work. It, it, it's just a very long haul and a very tough economic model. So in essence, what Tim Lywicki is saying is that the financial model here in Seattle is completely different from Kansas City. You'll remember in Kansas City, it was the city, it was, it was the public dollars that paid for the majority of that facility. It wasn't private money like here in Seattle. So when you have somebody else footing the bill, it becomes a lot easier to say, oh, well, we don't need teams. We're happy with this music model. It works for us. If you look at the arena in Kansas City... What's keeping it from being entirely profitable for the city is that a lot of the money it's making off of the music venue has to go to paying down the debt that it took on in order to build the Sprint Center in the first place. And remember, that's not going to happen here in Seattle with at least you know one of the groups, with the Oakview Group. Uh, Seattle Partners is asking for $250 million of public bond money that it's willing to guarantee, but Oakview Group is not. They are offering to fully finance through private means the construction of the arena itself. And what Tim Lawicki just said was, if you're going to do that, you can't rely solely on the music model because you're taking a real risk with that half billion dollar investment that you're making up front. So that's the difference that he says right there. Now, of course, after that, after that conversation, uh, Irving Azoff, who is Lawicki's partner and he, who is a longtime legendary music manager and uh, a household name in the music industry, managed the Eagles, Fleetwood Mac, a whole bunch of other 
really famous groups and still does. Um, Irving Azoff went public in an interview with the Wall Street Journal, and he said that the biggest league of all is music, that it trumps the other sports leagues. Well, that's true. He's stating a fact in that. I mean, that, that, does that mean that his group is going to forsake sports teams? Some people are interpreting it that way. And, you know, some of these people are, you know, pro-Soto people, so they're jumping on that comment. Um, yeah, I think you can interpret that comment in a whole bunch of ways. But, I mean, I did ask, again, as I said, Tim Laiwiki to try to, you know, I asked him how he is going, what his response is to these groups that are so worried about him going all music. And here's what he had to say to me. Now, I know all the sports guys out there will freak and go, they're only going to do music. But I'm going to repeat what I always said, which is, this is a path of our best shot to get one or two teams. And I, I, I said this earlier, this is not, if we get them, then we will build it. This is, if we build it, they will come. Uh, we have to, no league is going to ultimately commit here until they know that this arena is going to get built. And, and so what this does is it gives us the economic diversity to stand on our own two feet and take that risk and know that we're not going to be empty every night. These guys, in a good night, in a good year, they could do 40 to 50 shows. The Garden does 80-some-odd shows. But right now with this building, they're not going to do 40 nights here. It's a tough building. So there you go. And again, I don't expect, you know, like Wiki's comments to alleviate the concerns of everybody out there. And I'll be honest with you, I can't guarantee that they will go and get you teams. I can't I can't do that. I, I don't read Tim Laiwiki's mind. I don't read AEG or Bob Newman's mind. I don't read the, you know, Hudson Pacific Properties minds. But what I can do is use my own mind and apply common sense to the equation. Again, let's compare the two groups and Chris Hansen's group on this front. We're making, a, in some ways, an apples and oranges comparison. The two groups, AEG and Oakview Group, sorry, Seattle Partners and Oakview Group. Uh, we'll have to get used to calling AEG Seattle Partners. Seattle Partners and Oakview Group are both trying to build arenas on spec. Chris Hansen is not. Chris Hansen is building his arena on a big con a contingency the contingency that he needs teams before he will start any construction whatsoever. The other two groups are not. So in a way, Hansen is proposing a shovel-ready arena. That's what he wants, a shovel-ready arena plan to be approved, whereas these other two groups want a shovels-in-the-ground plan to be approved. And in order to do that, unlike Chris Hansen, these two groups are going to have to get means of sustaining their arenas while they go out and seek teams. As Tim Laiwiki just said, it's not a very tough concept to wrap your brain around. If you're going to build an arena on spec, you got to have somebody playing in that arena or else your arena is going to go under. You're going to lose hundreds of millions of dollars. You can't do that. There's a situation like that happening in Quebec City right now. They built an arena. There's no teams showing up and all they have going for it is a junior hockey team playing there. And, and you know, they get some concerts now and then. That's not a sustainable model. You need something going on in the interim. And that's something, as far as the AEG and the, uh, the Oakview Group plans are, involves music. So if you're going to throw out that fear factor, saying, well, all they're going to care about is music in the end, I, I can't tell you that, that I can't guarantee you that there are going to be teams coming. No, that's impossible. What I can tell you is that these two groups have a plan to get an arena built right now. 
Chris Hansen in Soto does not. He has a plan saying, give me a shovel-ready arena, and then I will go and try to get teams, and I will try to attract the additional financing I need to pay for the arena once I start construction. So again, as we talked about with the financial model, the financing model, um, Hansen appears to be behind both these groups because he's not asking to do an arena on spec. And, you know, I, I, again, I blame myself for this because last week I did the round of, of radio interviews. I did the whole radio circuit last week. And, and I kept getting asked by people, uh, is there anything Chris Hansen can do to get back in the game with, with the key arena groups? Because it looks like the city prefers key arena. And I, I said, you know, I, I should have given this answer. And the answer is simple. Yes, Chris Hansen can propose to build an arena on spec like these other two groups are doing. Because until he does, Chris Hansen will not be on the same level as these groups. Put yourself in the city's position. If you're sitting there as the city and you own an asset, you're already partial to that asset. You're already going to want to do something to take care of that existing asset. That existing asset is there, and you have two groups saying, we're ready to start construction tomorrow. Just give us the green light. We've got the rest figured out. Chris Hansen in Soto is saying, I'm going to build a brand new arena that will drain concert revenues from your current existing asset. And not only that, if you give me the green light tomorrow, he's saying, I'm not going to start construction. Then once you give me the green light, I'm going to go out and try to get teams to play in my arena. And then I'm going to also have to go out at the same time and get the financing lined up in order to pay for my arena. So does that sound like equal projects to you? It doesn't to me. But again, if, if some of you out there have better ideas or, or think that you know the answer, I, I welcome you to bring forth and explain to me logically how they would all be on the same even keel at that stage. So again, you've got two groups proposing to build an arena right away once they get the green light. You've got Chris Hansen saying he'll build it after he goes out and looks for teams and after he gets his financing lined up. That's not on an equal footing. So if you're going to criticize these groups for bringing in music to try to sustain their arenas so that once they're built, then you have to take the other, the flip side of the coin. Flip side of the coin is, yeah, but they're proposing to do something for big money with no guarantee of teams coming. And Chris Hansen's not willing to do that. So in my book, that still puts the two groups up here at a high level. I'd raise my hand, but we're not on television. And it puts Hansen's proposal down here. And, and the people who are arguing otherwise, you're going to argue with fear Fear factors and, and saying stuff that happened in Kansas City seven years ago means it's going to happen here in Seattle now. I can't argue against that because I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball. But we've heard these groups both say that they plan to bring in teams here. They put it in writing. Not only have they put it in writing, they've put their money where their mouth is. They've taken on partners that are involved in these leagues. You look at Hudson Pacific Properties, and they are owned by Victor Coleman, who has tried to get expansion NHL hockey here for the last two or three years. He even partnered with Chris Hansen at one point. Now he's part of the Seattle Partners Group. So to suggest that they're not going to try to bring teams in here, that, that just seems like an illogical, an illogical conclusion based on who the partners are in the Seattle Partners Group. Then you look at AEG, and you look at Tim Laiwicki, and you look at who his brother is. It's Todd Laiwicki. Todd Lewicki is a guy who is going to, he, he was, who, who is intertwined with Jack Sperling, who tried to bring the group over here to build the Bellevue Arena a couple of years ago. Jack Sperling is intricately connected with both the NBA and NHL. He actually served as the, the owner, de facto owner. Uh, he was hired by the NBA to be the New Orleans owner while they were searching for a new owner's group down there. So the NBA owes him some favors. 
The NHL has known Jack Sperling for years. He helped bring the Minnesota Wild franchise into existence with, you know, some help, some work done with Todd Lywicki, Tim Lywicki's brother. And Tim Lywicki, if you want to talk about local connections, Tim Lywicki still owns a house here in Seattle on Mercer Island. Tim Lywicki has long wanted to be an owner, involved in ownership of a franchise. So do you think Tim, do you think his brother, do you think Todd Lywicki would, uh, Todd Lywicki has wanted to be an owner? of a franchise. Do you think Tim Laiwiki would build an arena here in Seattle and then not go out and look for teams that his brother might be able to be involved in the ownership of? I don't know. That doesn't sound very logical to me. But again, I can't read minds. And you're absolutely right. I'm not going to tell you not to be afraid of the fact that they might build this venue and music might be the only thing that comes here. I'm just saying in my own book, using my own brain and my own logic, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And you heard Tim Laiwiki just try to explain the financing of it all. It just doesn't make sense. Again, Kansas City is Kansas City. Seattle is Seattle. You didn't have a bunch of ownership groups lining up to go into Kansas City and and bring teams there. Definitely not for hockey. You have three groups, and I've already told you who they are. You know, the Jack Sperling, Tim uh, Todd Lywicki group is one. Jerry Bruckheimer is another. And Victor Coleman, who's already involved in the Seattle Partners ownership of Key Arena, is another. So, I don't know. I don't know what, what you want me to tell you after that. But again, if we're going to rank the groups, you can criticize them for the music part, yes. But you've got two groups vying to build arenas, a key arena, tomorrow. Once they get approved, once they get green-lighted, they're ready to start construction the next day. Chris Hansen is not. Chris Hansen is saying, once you give me the green light, then I will go out and look for teams. Then I will go out and line up my financing. And so I I just can't equate those three on the same level. I'm sorry. And those who want me to do that, you know, you've come to the wrong place because I can't. I'm just looking at the facts of the situation right now. And finally, to close things out right now, let's take a look at traffic and parking. That's another big issue that that fans, you know, keep bringing up. And, And that I understand completely. Whether you're for the Soto Project or for the Key Arena Project, you're going to have legitimate traffic and parking concerns. Here's what I'm not going to do, though. I'm not going to compare Seattle to Rio de Janeiro. I'm not going to compare Seattle to driving through some slum in, in Calcutta, India. I'm not going to compare Seattle to the worst traffic ever known to mankind. It's not. We have bad traffic here. Yes. We're in the top 10 for worst traffic in America. I'll give you that. But a lot of the cities in the top 10 managed to build arenas, and they managed to build them in downtown locations. So I'm not going to say that because there are traffic issues in the Lower Queen Anne and the Mercer Corridor and the uptown area, that this means necessarily that an arena is impossible, that it invalidates an arena. This kind of thinking, I think, has hurt our arena debate for too long. It's all or nothing type of thinking. And I'm also going to suggest that just because traffic might be worse after all the mitigation strategies are used, they might be worse at the key arena area than in Soto, but that doesn't mean you hand the Soto project the victory. This is one component that we're talking about. I'm not going to make it an all or nothing component. I'm sorry. And, um, you know, the people that suggest that it should be, I'm going to throw some other numbers at you in just a couple of minutes. But let's look at the solutions. Oakview Group, we know, presented their traffic solutions, and it involves a car-centric 
solution. They're going to build a parking garage. The parking garage has uh, approximately 850 stalls in it. That's one of their solutions. Another solution involves using the monorail. Using the, I know this has been a controversial solution. I cannot understand why. Um, I, I think that some people who want the arena in Soto are going to knock down any idea that's out there, but I don't understand that. If somebody can explain to me logically how you can knock down a potential solution for transporting 3,000 people to a game, uh, you know, when you need to figure out how to get 18,000 people there, I think if you knock off 3,000 people from 18,000, then you lower your problem to having to figure out 15,000 people and how they're going to get to a game. That's common sense. Why would you not look at that solution as part of your traffic plan? So they are looking at the monorail. Uh, both groups are, but the Oakview group is what we're talking about right now. They're looking at the monorail. They're looking at coordinating traffic light signals, and they're also you know, saying the obvious, that there are going to be additional streets that become available once the Bertha Tunnel dig is complete, additional streets that become available to take some of the pressure off of Mercer. Now, if you look at the Seattle Partners Group, they're doing less of a car-centric approach. They're not building a garage. They are building more of a, a transportation hub, which is nearby the arena where all the buses can come, public transit, Uber, all that and and drop people off people with their bikes can also cycle there and will be able to lock up and park their bikes at this all-purpose transit hub that's going to be at the corners of uh, i believe it's first avenue and republican and that's where the the site of the new light rail is actually going to be put in the new light rail station now that's years and years away nobody's counting on that as a solution right now but eventually when it does become one it will be integrated with this transportation hub that's going to be in there that's that's part of the initial traffic solutions that both groups have proposed also i should say the seattle partners group is going to put five million dollars right off the bat towards existing city solutions existing plans that the city is looking at right now in order to alleviate traffic so both these groups both these groups are going to be using the monorail as i mentioned they they want to look at the monorail as a two car setup whereas mostly now it's just a one car setup and they want to get it working more efficiently so that people can drive their cars to the light rail stations anywhere in town, in, in the city park their cars there take the light rail down to seattle center Sorry to uh, to Westgate. Take take the Seattle take this take the uh, take it down to that facility in downtown Seattle, and then hop on the monorail from there from Westlake, not Westgate. Westgate's in Arizona. Westlake down to Westlake Station. Hop on the monorail from there and get to um, Seattle uh, to, to Seattle Center and to the arena, and then from there. Uh, one of the groups has proposed a, a covered walkway where you can walk the three or four minutes to the arena entrance without getting rained on. So that's a very important inclusion to put in the project as well. We don't have the full details because the full details have yet to be released to the public. That, that's that's very important to understand. These are complicated financial, complicated transportation and parking plans that they're going to come up with. And but they have not been released. I should mention that the Seattle Partners Group, one of their plans involves um, just having access to all four entrances of the arena. That's part of their architectural design. Anybody with tickets will be able to get in at all four sides of the arena. And that should help some of the traffic and parking issues because that means no matter where you put your car, it opens up the spots where no matter where you put your car, you will have the same equidistant walk to get into the arena. You won't have to walk around an entire arena to get to your entrance, and that could take an extra three or four minutes. And believe me, that, that would impact some of the parking strategies. I know that that's one of the strategies I use when I park near an arena. I try to figure out where I'm going to be, and I park my car in relation to that. So 
those are the solutions they've come up with so far. I can't give you more than that because I don't have access to more than that. And the questions I've asked so far have dealt with what I just told you. Now, does Chris Hansen have a better plan in Soto District? He has plans, yes, to build, to help finance the Lander Street overpass, and, um, he, which should alleviate traffic in the area. He's going to build a pedestrian bridge to cross over the railroad tracks, and that should ease some of the issues in the area, not only for people parking their cars and having to walk to the arena, but for drivers, drivers and, and, and for railroad, railway people, especially the, the trains that come by there. I mean, it's just, it's going, if you can just walk over that bridge and you don't have thousands of people now piling up waiting for trains to pass or wait, waiting until it's clear to get across the tracks, you, you lessen some of the danger in the area, but you also ease traffic around the area. If you've ever driven your car near an arena where a game's about to start or a stadium where a game's about to start, you will know that, that there's nothing worse than getting to a place where you have to turn and all of a sudden you got 5,000 people that have to cross the street at the same time and you miss two or three traffic lights. That helps traffic back up, believe me. So if you can have an overpass where pedestrians can go freely, come and go, um, it, it alleviates congestion in the area. And that's, that's going to help. And they have light rail there as well. Is the light rail perfect? No, it's not. It's, it's a good 10, 15 minute walk to get to the arena from the nearest light rail station. And while I can do it, I'm not complaining. I'm, al I'm almost 50 years old, but I, I'm in decent shape. I have no problem doing it, but it's a hike. It is a hike. And I'll tell you, somebody who's 65 years old and a season ticket holder and who's walking to that arena in the middle of the winter time, that might be a long hike. That might dissuade them from taking the light rail. So that's, that's just something to consider down there. Light rail is not the answer to everything. It's not really that effective a means of transport for mass amounts of people. And I'd like to see some studies, and I hope we do see some, uh, as this debate goes on about how many people are actually using light rail or, or would actually use it to get to the arena uh, and then walk the distance. I don't know the answer to that. I do know that Soto has traffic problems. I told people this story over and over. I went to a Seattle Sounders playoff game last November when they were playing the Colorado Rapids in the first leg of their uh, conference championship series, and it took me two hours to get to the arena, uh, sorry, to the um, to CenturyLink Field, two hours from Magnolia to CenturyLink Field. And it wasn't just me. Uh, they had to delay the kickoff of the game by half an hour because traffic was so bad outside. And you're talking about a crowd, I think it was about 40,000 that day. So that's more than hockey, yes, more than basketball. But there are traffic problems in Soto. That's something that should never happen at any sporting event. I don't know how it happened, but it took me two hours. I talked to somebody who was sitting in the suite next to me, the seat right next to me in the suite we were in. And uh, that person told me it took him an hour to get just from downtown to CenturyLink Field. So there are traffic issues in Soto. The people who tell you there aren't, they've never been there. I covered the Seattle Mariners for seven years. I know all about Soto traffic and it's not pretty. I used to do a show at KJR, and a Mariners game let out in the middle of the afternoon, and the crowd at that Mariners game was less than the crowd that you're going to see at the arena. It was a day game. I had my show, and I had about something like, uh, it, it took me, I want to say, about an hour and 10 minutes to drive from uh, Safeco Field to uh, KJR, which is right, um, right on uh, Elliott Avenue, Normally, that's about a 10-minute drive. Max took me over an hour. I walked in literally right before, a minute before my show was due to start. And they weren't sure what they were going to do without me there, but thank God I made it. But I've seen bad traffic there. And that was, you know, that was rush hour. I'll give it to you. But the traffic was horrible. So there is no perfect traffic solution anywhere in the city. And here are some numbers I'm going to roll out to you. Even if, even if we determine at the end of all this that, yeah, no matter what mitigation you use at Key Arena, it's always going to be 
um, worse off than Soto. I'm almost ready to give that to you right now because, you know, I'm willing to admit it. I, I, I don't see how they're going to get the lower Queen Anne area at Key Arena better than Soto. But my answer would be, so what? The, the question isn't whether you can make it better. It's, what, it's how close you can get it to Soto. So let's say they get the traffic at Key Arena to within 20% as efficient as the traffic in the Soto area. Let's say you get about 80% of the traffic conditions you would get at Soto. Is that enough to flip-flop the entire arena decision based on everything I've just told you? Um, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. The city's going to have to figure that out, and that's part of the economic equation that we've been talking about here. Um, because let's say you can get Key Arena to within 80% of Soto when it comes to traffic and parking. If you give the arena then to Soto, you still have a problem at Key Arena. You have to figure out what to do with Key Arena afterwards because Key Arena is profitable right now. Soto is going to make it unprofitable because it's going to take all the concerts away. So if you're the city measuring that equation, you've got to ask yourself, okay, what becomes a Key Arena afterwards? And we know from the ACOM report that was done in 2015 that they've looked at alternative solutions for Key Arena. And... Not all of those solutions are viable. There's only a handful that have been viable, and one of them involves making it a much smaller scale music venue and sports venue, and the sports venue would continue to host other teams, um, and they could do a dual entertainment sports facility by making it, by cutting it in half. That's, that's one thing that's been looked at. The whole thing that uh, people say, blow it up or turn it into public housing, that's not an option. They've looked at the housing option, and it's, it's a no-go. So... To do the other option that I just suggested, make it a smaller scale entertainment and sports venue, that's going to require at least $100 million worth of renovations. And who's going to pay for that renovation? It's going to be you and me, the taxpayers. Because unless you bring professional sports teams in or groups that are interested in professional sports like they're doing right now with the AEG and Oakview Group, um, you're not going to have private bidders lining up to pay that $100 million. That much is known it's pretty much been concluded in the studies that the city itself has paid for that the only way they can get private interest to pay for a renovation of Kirin is by doing what they're doing right now, inviting groups to come in and bid to make it a major sports facility. So you're looking at a $100 million minimum price tag to bring Key Arena up to snuff in order to make it even a smaller scale venue if Soto gets built. And then you've still got the issue of you know, how profitable is it going to be and you know what does that do to the rest of Seattle Center. So is that price tag worth it? Is, is having a, a facility that's only about 80% as good as Soto in parking and transit, is it worth it just to give up on it for, for that? Because we know the price tag is going to be at least $100 million. So that's the equation the city has to be. How close does Key Arena have to get to Soto Arena in order to make, you know, to make it viable, in order to make that money worth it? Or let me reverse the thing. How much better does Soto Arena have to be in, tra in traffic and transport and parking than Key Arena in order to justify a $100 million price tag minimum for the city of Seattle? And believe me, you might not like it that I'm bringing that up, but that's exactly the financial equation the city is going to be looking at when it makes this decision. So that'll, uh, that'll wrap this up. I think we've covered a lot of topics on this right now. You might not agree with me 100% on this. And as I just said, there's still room for a lot of improvements in both the bids that have been made, the offers, the proposals by the Key Arena Group, and also by Chris Hansen himself in Soto District. I've already suggested, if he wants to be more on a par with these groups, he's got to build an arena on spec like those groups. He's got to unveil his financing like those other groups already have. 
And then he'll have a better chance of winning this round with the city. He doesn't have to convince me. It's not about convincing Jeff Baker or the Seattle Times or anybody else, but it's about being able to compete on an even footing with the offers that are out there. And so that's how I see it. So if you want to talk about transportation and parking and traffic, by all means, do so. But you have to ask yourself, the end game, what's the city's end game going to be? And I just told you what it's going to be. They're going to see how close they can get the key arena bids to the Soto bids when it comes to parking and transportation. And then they're going to have to ask themselves, okay, if we go with Soto, what's the magic number? How much better does Soto have to be in traffic and in parking in order to justify the $100 million price tag we're going to have to pay to renovate Key Arena. I hope that makes sense. And I hope you've enjoyed this hour-long conversation that I've had as I've tried to break down objectively and using facts, using interviews, using clips that I've played for you in order to judge where things stand right now with these three arenas. I know not everybody's going to be happy. And, you know, as always, you're welcome to, to write in and phone in and express criticism, but do it, do it intelligently. If you want to talk about a point that you think I've overlooked, then you're more than welcome to do so. If you're just going to yell and scream and say that transportation matters about above everything, I'll tell you right now, it does not. And it does not in the eyes of those making the decisions in this. So if you want to better understand the process, you've got to come ready to argue um, intelligently and argue things that people in charge are actually looking at right now. And so that's all I have to say. It's going to be an interesting um, time ahead, as, as we've already said. Next moves ahead are there's going to be all kinds of advisory committees and executive committees looking at the key arena proposals and forwarding that stuff on to the mayor's office with a recommendation by the end of June. After that, Mayor Ed Murray is in charge of making a decision on which of the key arena groups, if any, to recommend to city council. And then city council is going to have to make a decision on one of those groups versus the Soto Project by Chris Hansen. And that'll wrap things up for another week here on Hard Count. I'm Jeff Baker of the Seattle Times, reminding you that you can download this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And please, when you do, be sure to review this podcast so other listeners can hear all about it and tune in as well. Thanks for listening. Be sure to join me next week.